Welcome to the middle of our ABF. I apologize for the technical error. Um, the question was, how, does Jesus, how do we account for Jesus knowing supernaturally some things? We just saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. I mean, good grief. And yet not knowing other things like the hour of his return or who touched me. Um, now, one suggestion is Jesus is, does know it all, and he's just saying this. I, I have a problem with that because it has Jesus being deceptive, him basically lying. Who touched me? Well, he knows perfectly well who touched me, but he's just saying this. And when he makes it clear, even the son doesn't know. Um, so that's one possible answer I think we can discard. The other, has Jesus periodically functioning in his humanity, functioning in his deity? This is popular by some groups. I don't like this one either. It makes Jesus almost bipolar. And what you end up doing, really, is whenever Jesus is talking, asking, is this human Jesus talking, or is this God Jesus talking? And the whole point of the Chalcedonian Creed is, is it's the, he's not, like, moving either way. What I prefer, I think, makes the best explanation, and there is antecedent um, examples of, is that Jesus is an anointed prophet, and anointed prophets in the Old Testament knew stuff they had no business knowing. For instance... Elijah, when, when Naaman comes and he sends him away to get baptized, right? He refuses payment. Well, the servant's like, what it gets? So he goes out, remember, after him. And what does Naaman say when he comes back? I saw you. He's, somehow, because the Spirit of God is on him, God re- determined this prophet would see this and know this. And other prophets evidence supernatural knowledge as well. My best explanation is, in the incarnation, Jesus voluntarily does not make use of his omniscience. I word it that way because it's not like he lost it, stopped being God. But what's clear is Jesus does not function consistently with all divine attributes. God doesn't grow weary or tired. Jesus is sleepy and takes a nap, right? So there are divine attributes. Jesus is not exercising all the time in his humiliation, in his incarnation. One of them seems to be omniscience. So I think that just as the prophets of old, God gave them the information they needed when and where they needed it, God gave Jesus the information he needed when and where he needed it, and Jesus trusted that his father would give him. So in my, in my explanation, that accounts for the supernatural knowledge. We have prophets in the Old Testament doing the same thing, and it stops the danger of God Jesus talking sometimes and human Jesus talking sometimes. And so he would know it now. Oh, out of his humbled state, he's omniscient. Yes. Jesus is God. God knows all. Right. So when Jesus says even the son doesn't know, the son, I would say, in his, humili- in his humbled state does not know. Jesus now knows, absolutely. There's nothing he does not know now. Um, does that, that make sense? That, that's my best explanation. I just really, I've, I've seen the people who teach this way, and you do end up sort of like, so is this God Jesus talking? Or is this human Jesus talking? And it's, it's kind of like Superman. Is it Clark Kent or Superman? And... No. Um, Timothy. Um, What was the... um, This goes for more than just this miracle, but the servants had to put water in the containers, and Jesus turned that existing water into wine. He could have just as easily manufactured the wine into the containers. He could have filled them up himself, yeah. Could have put it in people's glasses out in the banquet hall. <laughs> Could have shortened the feast. Yeah, yeah. No. Anyway, I, I, um, I just wonder, like, is there is there a guiding principle on that? I guess I, the most common agreed upon thought is that Jesus does it this way 
to to avoid any suggestion that he faked it. Mm. Um, maybe he came before and they filled the vats with wine prematurely by by drawing the water from the well, filling it to the brim. You avoid any suggestion of he came two days earlier and filled them with wine. We we saw where the water source came from. And we saw it get poured into the vats, and then we saw from the vats. So the water is seen from the beginning, from the well, to the jars, from the jars to the head waiter. There's no poss- possible falsification. That, that, I think, is the best explanation of why do it this way. The other is also, th- then the miracle is only seen by a handful of people. It's seen by his disciples, it's seen by his mother, and it's seen by the servants. And it doesn't. Make a big, I mean, because remember, when Jesus in Luke 4 comes back to his Nazareth and he opens the scroll in the synagogue and says, today in your hearing, this is fulfilled, they want to kill him. In part, I'm guessing, if this had gone out further, there would have been more of a reputation. I mean, they're willing to accept him. Jesus, I mean, everyone's attentive, we learn in, in Luke 4, but they're not ready to take him as the Messiah, and so part of his hour in making this a public issue is that might conflict with that. Um, but that, that'd be my, that's my understanding for why the water, why do it this way, is it removes the potential for falsification. Sure. And that probably holds true with a lot of the other miracles that he performs. I think like feeding of the 5,000 kind of stuff. It's like, you know, people could witness, here's a guy with a little lunch pail, you know, here's, <laughs> and I'm going to make much of it, you know, versus... Right. Well, and the other thing it shows is, and in, and in John's gospel in particular, Jesus' miracles are all sort of extreme. It's not just a blind man. It's a man born blind. It's not just a lame man, but it's a man who's been lame for 30 years. It's, yeah, I mean, in every instance, it's like the most difficult version of the thing you're doing. Um, and so here, it's just water. And, and he's not even like, I mean, I, I love how we don't, he doesn't even do anything. He doesn't wave his hand. He doesn't, you know, cast the spell. He just go, go bring it to the wedding. Yeah. Groom. Yeah. It's very cool. Okay. Other uh, questions, thoughts? We haven't even touched on Mary yet, which I thought for sure we'd do. Oh, <laughs> Allison. Hmm. So how do we know when it's like the pr- the prophet has... Like, he knows this because he's a prophet versus he knows this because he's God. Like, if we were explaining this to somebody else and they say, well, but the prophets knew these things and Jesus could just be just a prophet. Sure. No, no. Um, the question is, how, how do we know? Uh, if, 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 if my answer to Jesus knowing things is he's functioning like a prophet, well, then how do we argue he's God? Why couldn't he just be a prophet? Like, say, Islam says. Why, why not just say Jesus is a prophet? I would not argue Jesus' deity from his supernatural knowledge for precisely that reason. There are plenty of other people in the Bible who know things they have no business knowing because the Spirit of God's upon them. I would argue Jesus' deity from other grounds. So I, I, I grant Jesus knowing Nathaniel is under the fig tree makes him the king of Israel, the son of God. Like you, you're clearly that, you're clearly Psalm 2, but that doesn't prove you're God. Fair enough. Um, no more than Elijah's knowledge proves Elijah is God. So are you asking more than that? Or, or I would argue his deity from other grounds. Now here, I'd argue his deity from the creation of wine out of nothing, out of just water, reveals the same force and power that spoke the world into being. But 
I wouldn't argue his knowledge, his deity from he knows things he has no business knowing, um, be, precisely because there are other people who know things they have no business knowing. But, but to make to make back to the point, because if and some some people argue that Jesus always is omniscient on earth when he's humbled, you run into the problem with the places where he says he doesn't know things, and you can either say it's theatrical, it's it's for show. And you kind of have Jesus being deceptive. And when he makes that bold statement in Matthew about not knowing the hour, not even the sun, that, that seems to be a bold-faced lie. So if you want to say he's omniscient, then all the time, functionally, and I want to use the word functionally, he's acting, he's, he's experiencing omniscience, then Jesus is flipping switch. And, and sometimes when Jesus doesn't know things, well, he's operating his humanity. And then you end up having to ask whenever Jesus speaks, is he speaking from his humanity or is he speaking from his deity? And you end up with the Clark Kent Superman dilemma. I don't like that. So I got this primarily from, turn to Luke 4. John doesn't have this as much, although John does with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in, in Luke 4, 14, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Luke. He's, he's been baptized. He's been tempted. And in 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So when Jesus begins working miracles, Luke has already framed how it inter- Where did the power for these miracles come from? The power of the Spirit. So Luke frames for us. He tells us how to view the ensuing miracles where Jesus is healing everybody. And I think we're to conclude in Luke, not, well, of course he's God, he can heal everybody, but rather, of course, the spirit of God's on him. In John's gospel, John the Baptist has alluded to the baptism. The spirit descended upon him and abided there and remained there. And so you have something similar. So I would mostly argue that Jesus' miracles... Given that, I'd even say that the turning of the water into wine probably, the text doesn't say this, so I won't get dogmatic, is the Holy Spirit functioning and turning it into water. Not Jesus tapping into to his own rightly owned power. The, the point of the signs, according to John, is they testify to who he is. So, so turn to John 5. And this, and this gets back to the issue of deity. Um, in John 5, Jesus clearly claims to be God, I, I believe. You see that in 17. Jesus answered, my father's working till now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So I, I think that you're, that's a claim to deity. And verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I have to keep telling this to my kids. I didn't do it! Like, okay, great, find me another witness. Um, They've got plenty of options. Um, You know, and... um, So Jesus points to... What does Jesus point to that you would take such a bold claim? He doesn't say, just take my word for it. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Okay, who? You sent to John. He is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive 
is from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for all in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father has sent me himself as born witness about me, which is referencing either the Mount of Transfiguration or the voice at his baptism. So Jesus points to the testimony of John. You guys received John as a prophet. What did John say about me? My works testify and confirm what I'm saying. And God the Father has twice spoken publicly as to who I am. And on that basis, I expect you to receive my claim to being the Son of God. So I'd look to what, on what grounds does Jesus say I should be persuaded? His works, the testimony of the prophets, and he'll give one more, the scriptures. Let's, let's look at that one too. Um, verse 37, the father who sent me has himself born witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So to repeat, John the Baptist, his works, God the father and scripture are the four witnesses Jesus points to to validate the claim. So on the one hand, the claim to be equal with God is a huge claim, and Jesus doesn't just say, you're going to have to trust me for that. It's right to say, okay, what's the evidence? What's the, what's the testimony to this? But the answer is John the Baptist, a received prophet from God, God the Father, Jesus' miraculous works, and the scriptures, all bearing witness to him. And on that fourfold witness, more than two or three witnesses, we have four. On that basis, Jesus says, you should receive my word and my claim. So that, yeah. Cool. Other questions, thoughts, complaints? We haven't even touched Mary yet. I'm surprised. Jennifer. 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 All right. So on Mary's response to Jesus, can you just unpack a little bit more on that? Because it almost sounds like Jesus was saying, no, like I'm not going to do it. And then her response, like you're saying it's a humble, um, like she's, she's having a submissive, humble attitude and saying he'll do what's right. But I just explaining more how you came to that conclusion and even looking at our response and prayer, how we should respond to God. I just having trouble getting my head kind of wrapped around that. What, what is going on here that I, I can bring out more that didn't come out as much in the message. Mary seems to still anticipate he's going to do something. She's certainly at the very least hopeful. So she comes to Jesus and Jesus gently rebukes, corrects her. Um, or at the very least, let's make sure we're on the same page. Woman, this is not part of my messianic mission directly. Um, and his concern is with her, is with what she's concerned about. It's not, no, I won't do it. I would, I would say the reasons why you want me to do it, what you're going to John 7, let's go to John 7. John 7, I think, is very helpful in understanding what's going on here. They're very similar um, encounters. So in John 7, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Jerusalem because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So we're told off the bat, Jesus is trying to avoid being arrested at this point. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. There's almost a sense of mockery in this. 
Why are you hanging out in the backwaters, Jesus? Go, go for the big time. Go to Jerusalem. Go and do miracles there. And, 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 you know, and look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, my time is not come, but your time is always here. So same type of argument. I'm focused on my timetable in, in John, do my hour. And you're not thinking about that. Um, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up, but not publicly, but in private. So how is Jesus not lying? I think the implication, I'm not going to go up like you're suggesting go up to the feast. And again, so in, in both instances, family members petition him to do something. Jesus' response is here much more clearer. You're not thinking about my timetable. I'm thinking about my timetable. And in both instances, after pushing back, he does the thing they suggest, except the text makes it clear he does it secretly or privately. That's why I think they help explain each other. And so here, it's the issue. We already got in verse 1. If I go up publicly, they're going to arrest me, and the crucifixion is going to happen before it's supposed to happen. By the way, in answer to... Um, to whose question about the time Dan, but the book of Daniel tells you when the Messiah is supposed to be crucified. That is not supernatural knowledge. It's, I mean, it's supernatural knowledge and it's from God, but any faithful Israelite could have done the math and figured that out. Jesus doesn't need to be a prophet to know adding the years from the decree of the return when the, when the anointed one is supposed to be cut off. So that would be something you could piece together from, from Daniel. So Jesus knows when he's supposed to be crucified. And if he goes up publicly, which we know from verse one, he doesn't want to get arrested now. He'll, so he goes up guerrilla style and sort of pops up in the middle of the Feast of Booths and starts preaching. And then we get told in seven, what is it, 20, they, the, uh, they couldn't lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Is it 20? Where is it? Um, hold on one second. No, 7.30. They're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So... Jesus rejects the big entourage with the, with the pomp and, uh, you know, and, and just like, like what we get at the triumphal entry. He's not going to do that now because the hour is not yet. But he does do what they suggest he do just as a secretly. So, okay, so now back in John 2, Mary comes to him and isn't thinking about any of this stuff. And so Jesus ch- challenges her on... It's the separation that starts with in, in Luke 2 when he's 12. Didn't you know I have to be up my father's business? And, and, and there, again, there's this little sting because your father and I have been worried about you. And Jesus references a different father, right? So he's, he's making that space. Like, I am your son, and I'm, but I'm different than other sons and mothers. And so he's challenging her on that regard. Mary takes it on the chin, does not grumble, does not push back. And I think her response to the servants is one that's hopeful. She's still hopeful Jesus will do something, which still follows the pattern of, say, the Syrophoenician woman. You know, even the dogs get the scraps, right? So Jesus pushes back. She's, I think her response clearly shows submission. There's no, like I said, how dare you talk to your mother that way, or I can't believe you said that, or I'm so hurt, or whatever, any number of things a Jewish woman could have said to show um, hurt. She just looks at the servants. If he tells you to do something, do it. Which shows still some level of expectation, which I think is, which is a mark of faith. She's, she's, 
your mind is on your hour. She's trusting that if in that different vantage point, Jesus uh, can, he will do this thing for her, which is what he does. He can, he can serve with his vantage point, considering the hour. He can serve that and honor his mother and honor this wedding, and so he does. And she's probably come to know and expect he is generous and gracious and all these things that, of course, he would be. So she doesn't claim to know how the hour factors in, but I think she's still hopeful he'll do something, and he does. Does that make more sense, or are you still... She just says, if he tells you to do something, do it, right? Whatever he tells you to do, you do. Maybe he'll still do something. Maybe he'll still act. I I concede to your challenge about what is this to my business. I mean, it's a strong statement. Like I said, the the strength of it seen in the demoniacs using it. Uh, It's the same expression, the what what this to me, you and me. Something, it's it's hard. That's what the Greek translates as. It's it's a Hebrew idiom which shows up in the Old Testament all the place. David's always saying it to the sons of Zeruiah. They want to go kill people for him. And he's like, what have I to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? You know? um, and yes. Oh, Lee. When you say she wants him to do something, doesn't that sound suspicious to anybody besides me? You grew up with the son of God was living in your house. And all of a sudden, Mary thinks he can do something. The challenge is, he, to our knowledge, based on this being the first sign, he hasn't worked any miracles. So it's possible that it's possible, whatever you want to think of the first of his signs. No, no. It's, well, we, we're pretty confident, pretty confident. Prior to the baptism, he hasn't worked any. So, um, so it, it's possible that Mary has put together, my son is the Messiah. My son has been baptized. Therefore, it would be appropriate to expect miracles. It, it's possible she is expecting a miracle, but not because she's seen tons of them. I, I like the suggestion from, from some of the commentators that whatever is going on, she has learned that Jesus is ultimately dependable, resourceful, creative. I mean, he is going to be the exemplary of everything of that. So here's this problem. Who has she learned to fix the problem? especially if Joseph's dead. So, I mean, you've met people. I don't know what to do. Here's a problem. Help. So it could be that she's got no more than that put together. There's this problem. Jesus, do something. Or if she's been reading her Bible and thinking and putting stuff together, she may think you're the anointed Messiah. Let's see what he does. Um, I think that might be more of what he tells you to do, do in that response than the first one, because the, the rebuke seems to be, I need to make sure you understand the change in our relationship that's happened since I've been baptized. Um, so, no, no, fa- fair enough. Exactly. It's hard to psychoanalyze Mary. We can guess, we can try to figure it out, but we don't exactly know. I think another thing that makes it as hard for us to understand is I, I think of it like in our house, if... If she asked me to do something or we asked the kid to do something, you might get a little grumbling and complaining, but I'm, you know, we're going about our rat race yeah. and like, we know they're going to do it. I'm going to go on to the next thing. Like picturing Mary asking him to do something, he pushes back and then she's like, just do what he says because she fully expects he's going to obey and do it anyway. Yeah. 
think no. the children well no but see well that's that's <laughs> no, that's the that's the catholic the catholic reading is strangely enough is that jesus can't really say no to his mother part of the reason for her being the co-redemptrix is look even when he rebukes her he still does what she asks which D.A. Carson in his commentary says, on that basis, we'd have a lot of co-redemptrix if every person who's ever asked something of Jesus and got it, <laughs> you know. Right. No, the, the overarching theme in all the Gospels that Jesus, while he honors his mother and loves his mother, is constantly making it clear she's not too close, um, can't, shouldn't be missed. That, no, she's not part of the Godhead. She's not the third member of the Trinity. <laughs> she's not the co-redeemer. Um, she is blessed among women, and she is. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to say. That the other side is, as Protestants, we don't go so far. We don't ever want to say anything about her. Um, from, from now on, all people will call you blessed. We should be able to say, Mary is most blessed of God, not because she's a fountain of grace, but because she's a great receiver of it. But also, doesn't it say that? I mean, once we become believers, or that? I mean, we should. Um... Um, I mean, we should honor God over our family. Like, he should be above and beyond them. So yes. um, ultimately, if he feels like something from God, we're, you know, that, hey, this is not your time, then, hey, I'm honoring him, and you're, you know, you're just a woman to me, or you're just, a, you know, a, a, um, yeah, we're just supposed to treat them differently, or, or I can't think of my words. Yeah, separately, they're just not the same equality. Yeah, no, right. And, and part of the challenge, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to try to trivialize this too much. Part of the issue is once Jesus has been consecrated and baptized, he's so focusedly on mission that if Mary, again, it's hard to come up with examples without it sounding silly and trite, like we ran out of some fish, you know, like I'm, I'm on mission here. So if you want to come to me as a disciple, you want to come humbly, I'll hear you. But if you're just coming to me as my mother saying, while you're out, can you remember to, it's, I can't do it without making it sound silly. But it's that shift of movement to, again, part of the reason I read D.A. Carson's quote is I thought he said it well. I'll read this again. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare to presume to approach him on some inside track. I, I like that. I like the way he says that. Um, Yeah. Right. The, the, the wrong inside track would be, um, I'm a pastor's kid. I'm, 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 I'm a pastor's kid. Or if we could find, if someone could genetically prove they descended from one of Jesus' half-brothers, they would have no advantage before God, even if they could prove I'm a direct descendant of Jude, of, of um, James the Just. I, it, would we have no advantage now in John 13 and following he's going to say ask anything you want in my name as his children by faith who he gave the right to become sons we can have great boldness in what we ask and so the move seems to be just making it clear you're, you're coming to me as a disciple Mary you're not coming to me as my mother you're coming to me as a disciple in with your request and she she accepts that correction without challenge um Microphone. Yeah. Look, we're already missing like 10 minutes of the ABF, so come on. We'll get it back to you, Simeon. Let, me, let Lee. Let me finish her. 
and I'll get to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about this at a ladies uh, group that I was with and about him, how he sounded kind of brisk, brusque with her yeah. woman. And I, I like my NIV that says dear woman. That's so he, too, he's giving her some. That's ex- too sweet. No, is that too nice? That's too nice. It's somewhere in between. It's somewhere. <laughs> oh, me- no, it's somewhere in between. No, because I'm saying in English, woman is derogatory. Yeah. The sweetness of dear NIVs. I know the NIV is trying to shave woman off. That's too nice. The best I've got is ma'am. It's polite, it's respectful, Madden. but it's also distanced. Hmm. I mean, like, like I said in the sermon, the real significance is what he doesn't call her, mother. Yeah. Okay. So, dear woman, I think is a bit much. He's um, being too nice. It, it would be, I would say the gune, um, woman, is, has no real connotations. It, ma'am, as a sort of neutral word that's neither rude nor super polite, it's, it's, a, it's sufficiently appropriately respectful, but it's not over-the-top respectful. It's not some term of total endearment. It's the same word he uses when he speaks to her from the cross, woman, behold your son. Same exact word. The two times Jesus talks to Mary in John's gospel, he calls her woman. J- Simeon. <laughs> so I see it as the... Um, Jesus is correcting into the ask rightly and then it is aligned with my will and then once you've aligned your ask to my will then things will happen yeah. versus asking wrongly. Yeah. I think that's that's what we see in like other Well that's where he's going to teach us disciples ask, when we get to 13 through 15. When because when to, he says when yeah. he says that like it's not my time yet but he still goes and does it but yeah. he does it a different way. Yeah. He's He's doing it, but he's not doing it because they put the idea into his head. And he was like, well, I'm going to do it like, but not do it. It's, he was going to do it, but you just asked wrong and you're like expecting him to show up and be flashy or whatever. No, an example for us might be, we ask something from God, like a petulant child. I need, I must, and, and the Lord may, why don't you check your attitude? And then he goes ahead and gives us what we ask for. I think he does that with us regularly. Part of what we're to see from this is he's not stingy. He's not a killjoy. Where he can't, he withholds no good thing from his children. I mean, we're, we're told this. So if God does withhold something, it's because there's a purpose and a, and a need for it. What we learn from later in John is ask anything in my name according to my will and it'll be given to you, is the default position should be he will give, right? Unless there's, according to his will and his purpose, a reason not to. And again, I think Mary may well have learned some of this already, which might explain some of her expectancy. So the challenge seems to be mostly on her avenue of approach, how you're coming to me, what you may be assuming in our relationship. Now, what she says doesn't give that away. His rebuke does. His correction does. You're assuming some connection, most likely mother to son, that's in play, and you're coming to me in a relationship that's not appropriate for you to come to me in right now. Yep. As a mother saying to her son, Take care of this, please. And and she takes it. Understands that. Yeah. Totally. Readjusts and then yeah. says, "Well, this is still possible. Let me ask differently." Yeah. And by asking differently, she just is like, "Well, he could do something, so you guys be ready." And, and, and like I said, we have a pattern of this. The Syrophoenician woman's the best example of mm-hmm. people coming, and it's almost like Jesus wants to test or push them to see if they have faith and see what their faith will say. So mm-hmm. I mean, the Syrophoenician woman, it's not good to give the kids food to dogs. That's not a, nobody's going to, nobody, especially in the first century, is going to take kindly to being 
analogized to a dog. No one ever. Does. And she's just clever. She pushes back. Yeah, but even the dogs eat the table scraps. And Jesus yep. is like, okay. <laughs> you know, he's amazed by her faith and he heals her child. Um, and it's not like I think he wasn't going to do it before. It's, again, the appropriateness. I'm on a mission right now as Israel's Redeemer and King right now. The Gentiles, he is going to the Gentiles, but in John's Gospel in 12, it's the coming of the Gentiles that mark now it's time. So when the Gentiles start coming to in John, um, that's the hour has come. So that's, it's early ministry tells them not to go to the Gentiles in the other Gospels. So there, her coming is kind of un, not in keeping with where he's at in his ministry right now. But her faith is so persistent, and she's simultaneously like, like, willing to take it on the chin and not challenge and yet push back with faith. Yeah, but like, okay, you know? Um, so we have patterns of this where Jesus initially rebuffs somebody, they persist in faith and he grants them what they want. I think it's keeping with, with those as well. Yeah. But I think, no, I think your synthesis is right on Simeon, right on five minutes. Zach. Um, seems like the Pharisees, like, even by now, we can already kind of tell, like, they're more concerned with their position and keeping their power and stuff than about, like, what the Bible says and yeah. the Messiah coming and stuff. So maybe that explains it. But it just kind of struck me when you said, like, you know, anyone who was really looking into, like, Daniel and, like, doing the math yeah. could know when the Messiah was going to be cut off. And yeah. so when they're... Like, I'm just imagining some guy, like, knowing the year, and then, like, you know, Jesus is challenging them, and they want to put him to death. They're like, wait a second, this is the year. Like, this is what Daniel said, and we're doing this thing. Could this line up? But, you know, obviously, like, they just want to kill Jesus, so that's their main prerogative. Well, no, go to, go to, John, go to John 5. This is, this is critical. We must not think the Pharisees made an honest mistake. And, and the Pharisees should be a, a terrifying warning to us. These guys know their Bibles, in regards to at least quoting it, almost certainly better than any of us. Most of them had probably, from what we can tell extra-biblically, memorized the entire Old Testament and a body of rabbinic literature two to three times longer. Um, and we read this. Less, John makes it clear. Jesus, in John, makes it clear. It is not an honest mistake. So, um, verse 39 of chapter 5. Well, 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. If you do not believe the one he has sent, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Pharisees did not believe Moses. That's what Jesus says. So the reason they don't believe Moses is in 44. How can you believe? Assume the answer you can't. 
when you receive glory that comes from one another, do not seek the glory that comes from only God. They're more interested, and we know this in 11, they're going to come take our position. They're more, their fear of man, and they're man's approval, and man's glory, and man's honor, and they love greetings in the streets, and they love sounding the gong, and they love the honor they get, and they're not concerned with God's glory, is why they don't believe Moses, which is why they don't believe Jesus. That's, that's the causality at the end of five. So the Pharisees are not making, the Pharisees are morally to blame for their rejection of Jesus. They can't argue. We can't defend them. Oh, they just misunderstood. They mistook. Jesus spells it out. If you really believed Moses, you'd believe me. And you don't believe Moses because you don't want God's glory. You want the glory that comes from men. So the issue isn't these guys. I mean, I, I get your point in one sense. They should have been able to count and figure it out. I say part of it, though, would be we know when Cyrus's decree goes out. But I mean, in that world, I think you could probably get close. But we have people like um, Simeon in the temple who's or Anna. Who, it's coming close. They're waiting. And it's even revealed to him. You're going to live to see the Lord's Christ. I think some Israelites evidence some knowledge that the time's getting real close. Um, so they may not be able to pin it down to a year like we can with our calendars, but I, I think it's possible. But the Pharisees didn't believe the Old Testament, even though they could quote it. They didn't receive it in, in, with faith. And so it's, we're not dealing with people who are receiving the scriptures and believing the scriptures. And No, they're, they're blind. They're dead. They don't believe Moses. That's what Jesus says. So that's what I say. Uh, you know, no, it's it's tough. It's tough, but yeah, yeah, that is a good a what we call like challenge or you know warning to all of us because sometimes, you know, for me personally anyway, I could think like, well, if I just knew more of my Bible, if I spent more time in my Bible, if I, you know, went to seminary and you know spent all this time doing all these you know things for God, that would make me so much closer and so much you know more pleasing to God. And it's like maybe, maybe not. Well, it don't, don't, on my don't, heart. don't argue the, no, don't argue the inverse. Mm-hmm. It's the Pharisees knew their Bibles and they didn't believe. Therefore, if I want to believe, I should get as far away from the Bible as possible. Now that's not <laughs> just because cats have tails. Doesn't mean everything with a tail is a cat, right? Um, the, the inverse isn't the case, but the danger is if we're not, if, there is a, the warning is this God's word. If we could liken it to light or heat, will either soften your heart or harden it. And the danger, the real danger, is to harden yourself to it. And man, for the people who know God's word and aren't submitting to it, the hardness of their heart, the heart, and in God's anger at them is, is the, I'll quote John MacArthur, and we'll quit for the day. We tend to view sin in the opposite relationship that God does. In other words, most people can see the sin in their sin. Most people, if they lie, if they cheat, if they steal, be like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, right? Very few people can see the sin in their good deeds, their wrong motives. And virtually no one sees the sin in their religion. Who is Jesus most angry at? Who is his strongest denunciations against? Pharisaical religion. Followed by self-righteous good people. And it's not like he lets the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes off the hook. But in his tier of culpability, and it makes sense, the people who know the Bible inside out, the people who claim to be, they sit in Moses' seat, they of all people should know better, right? 
So the danger for us, because we do want to know his word, and we do want to draw near, is, okay, to whom much is given, much will be required, right? That's the danger for us. Okay, Godspeed, God bless, good day, and I hope to see you all tonight.